0: Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Mary Agnes Carey, Partnerships Editor and a Senior Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm in this week for your usual host, Julie Robner, who will be back next week. I'm joined today by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill federal agencies, and the states. We're taping at our usual time this week on Thursday, October 11th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news can happen fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. Today we're joined by Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Good morning. Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Good morning. And my Kaiser Health News colleague, Julie Appleby. Hello. Great to have all of you here. We have so much to talk about, so let's get started. We have some news this morning from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services about premiums in the Affordable Care Act exchanges for next year. And there's also new data about how insurers are faring in the ACA exchanges. The Senate this week turned back an effort from Democrats to block short-term health plans, while Democrats used the debate to reaffirm their commitment to protect coverage of pre-existing medical conditions. President Trump has signed into law a measure that prohibits pharmacists from telling consumers when they can save money by paying the lower cash price instead of the price negotiated by their insurance plan. And the Food and Drug Administration will make it easier for pharmaceutical companies to bring more complex and more profitable generic drugs to market, throwing the struggling industry a crucial lifeline. So let's go first to the news that we just had this morning from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. We know it as CMS. They were talking about premiums in the Affordable Care Act marketplaces for 2019, Julie, I want you to start. Give us the
1: highlights, and what do they mean for consumers? Well, yeah, we just got off the call this morning with uh, CMS Administrator Seema Verma, and they were talking about the average benchmark plans. Now, these are the silver plans that are sold through the Affordable Care Act marketplaces, and she said that next year, for the first time, they are going to actually be going down. They're going down, on average, 1.5% across the 39 states that use the uh, federal exchange. They're going down more in some states. Uh, Tennessee, for example, they said 26 percent down, 16 uh, percent down in Pennsylvania. So, so they were touting this. She said this contrast to double digit increases that they've seen in the past, which she said was a result of the Trump administration's efforts to reduce regulations. So they're taking credit for lower or declining rates for next year. However, uh, some experts say the reason that the rates are flat or even declining is that they went up an awful lot this year. So on average this year they went up about 34%. And some of that was medical inflation, according to the Congressional Budget Office report that came out. But a lot of it was also actions taken by the Trump administration and also by Congress to talk about repeal. Uh, if you remember, remember they cut off some of those payments to insurers those that were meant to lower deductibles right. and things like that. So all of that contributed to this 34 percent increase. So we saw a big run up this year. We're seeing declining rates on average next year.
0: So they bumped it up. 2018 in anticipation of what might happen with the Trump administration, what had happened with the Trump administration. Another interesting takeaway from the report this morning is that there are more health plans participating, right, in the plan in the, for the exchanges next year. I think they said about two dozen. And of the plans that are currently in, the health insurers, 29 of them are expanding service. Is that a surprise? Did you anticipate it? Why do we think that's happening?
2: Well, I think that one of the reasons is that there had been so few plans participating in the past year or so. It was down to three and a half insurers per state in 2018. And you have to think about what has happened to the exchanges over time. In 2014, it was an early year. They didn't really – insurers didn't know what to expect a lot of people think they underpriced their products. They lost money. They continued losing money, and they didn't make up a lot of that revenue. Then, in 2016 and 2017, they started they started trying to charge more, um, and and many of them got out of the business because they just weren't making enough money. Um, so. As Julie mentioned, you know, they had I- increased their rates um, in 2017, they increased their rates 20% and then as she said, they increased their rates 34% last year. They're making more money and so they're more willing to come back. But, you know, we started we started when all of this began in 2014 with five insurers per state. And it ticked up a little bit the next year. There were six insurers per state. And then every year after that, it declined. We have fewer insurers willing to participate in this business because the consumers were sicker than they thought they would be. They didn't get all of the federal money that they were promised. And there were lots of problems starting from the beginning and then continuing. There's just been uncertainty in this market all the way through. So I think this is the year where insurers realize they can make some money and, you know, one of the criticisms is that premiums actually would be even more reasonable this year if there hadn't been the uncertainty over the past year.
0: So, Anna, is this a sign that the uncertainty is calming down or is this just sort of a note in time where insurers are reading the market as it is now?
3: I think they're reading it as it is now. And I say that because I think there is more Possible uncertainty to come. Um, One of those things being the short-term, limited-duration plans um, that that you mentioned earlier, and um, if the if if more people move to those, so if your healthiest people move out of the ACA market and go to those plans, that could you know depending on how many could trip up this. Careful calculation these sure. insurers have finally made over all these years, um, so I think they still have that to deal with. I, and healthcare isn't. Going away, we're still hearing it talked about um, in the midterm. Absolutely, we'll and, get to that in a minute. Right, sure. and and repeal and replace, you know, was enough to kind of throw uncertainty. And so I think this continued discussion um, is something that they have to deal with. We also see the individual mandate being repealed, um, so that could also add to more healthy people just going without insurance altogether. Sure, if they and that's want
0: to. that's that penalty. That is going to go away as of January 1st of 2019. That was assessed on individuals who didn't buy health insurance, and we'll get to that shortly. But I want to stay first with this idea of insurers being profitable. Rebecca, you brought that up earlier. Uh, as we know, a new analysis from the Kaiser Family Foundation found that insurers in the individual market performed better financially in the first six months of this year than they have since the ACA began. Anna. Or uh, Rebecca, whoever wants to jump in, <laughs> don't want to scare anybody. How did that happen? How did they come to better profitability in 2018? You mentioned a little bit about that, Rebecca, right. about them anticipating. Go ahead. Right. Uh, I think the... they.
2: I think they overshot. And you know, one thing that's interesting in that analysis is you see the premiums that they're collecting. I, I think it was around 500, something like that, and then the claims that they're having to pay out is right. around 350, perhaps. I don't have it in front of me, but that that's, you know, there was a big gap, a, a growing gap between the money they had to pay out and the money they were collecting. Sure. And so that makes well, th- a big difference.
3: I thought that was an interesting point when looking at the different analysis of why the insurers are doing well is what you're referring to is the medical loss ratio. And so they're supposed to sort of come within a certain percentage range of, how much in premiums they pay out in claims. And at the height we saw in 2015 was something like 93% um, that they were paying out. And that was when they started really having some troubles. We're all the way down to possibly as low as 69% this year. But I had, you know, that kind of struck me because when we were talking about the ACA debate, they wanted that number to be around 80 um, for it to really be beneficial to patients as well, so even though insurers are doing well,
1: that might raise a question on the other other end of
3: um, the the consumer end. Well,
1: that's what the Affordable Care Act also requires, as you pointed out. It's the the law requires that insurers spend eighty percent of their premiums on actual medical care, so that's to avoid, you know, skimping on things. And so they clearly have raised their premiums enough to cover their costs and then some. So. That's probably what we're saying. So it seems like
0: some factors that could be – they're pointed pointed to in this uh, report that could change this good performance – we're going to go to short-term plans in a minute, talk about that. The repeal of this individual mandate penalty could certainly be part of that. And also an interesting highlight I saw in the report was the number of days that an individual enrollee spends in a hospital in the first six months of 2018 was higher than in the previous three years, which some analysts interpreted that could mean that there's a poss- possibly a worsening of the risk pool. And again, that's are all the people that are in that are covered by the insurance, the sick, balance, the healthy. But if you have more sick than healthy, that could drive rates. So so let's go ahead and move to the short-term plans. Uh, Julie, I'm going to kick this to you. As we know, in the Senate, they took some action yesterday, uh, Wednesday rather. They turned back a move from Senate Democrats to reverse the new Trump administration regulations that allowed insurers to sell these skimpier health plans outside of these ACA marketplaces for up to a year rather than the previous limit of three months. Julie, can you explain for us what are the short-term plans what do they do? Why do Republicans
1: like them? And why do Democrats dislike them? These are plans that were initially meant basically to be policies to cover you in between jobs or while you just get out of school, or it's kind of a gap coverage. It's, it's 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 These are policies that are meant to be temporary, although in the past they've been sold for up to 12 months. They are less expensive than Affordable Care Act plans, but they cover a lot less. There's a number of holes in them that some people would say that they don't cover things. So, for example, they can bar people with any kind of a medical condition from even enrolling They can say, no, we don't want you. Sorry. They can charge people more if they're sick. You have to fill out a number of questions about your health and say, you know, have you been treated for this in the last 12 months or two years or five years, depending on the insurance. You have to answer those kinds of questions. So then they can bar you. They um, often don't cover prescription drugs or they have kind of limits on that. Most exclude maternity coverage, preventive care, mental health and substance abuse care. And they may cover you if you don't get sick and, and even then there may be some some coverage. But uh, the Obama administration was worried that a lot of people would be attracted to these because they are less expensive and they would pull people out of the Affordable Care Act marketplace and so raise, premiums for those folks who were in that. So they limited them to 90 days. The Trump administration has said that there were some problems with that. People needed them for more than 90 days. You had to reapply. If you got sick in those initial 90 days, you might not even be able to get one of these policies, because remember, they can bar people with pre-existing conditions. So they said, we want to put it back to 12 months. And on top of that, they are allowing insurers the option of renewing them for up to three years. Now, you can question whether a plan that can be renewed for three years is really a short-term plan, but... They say it is. And so that's that's what they're putting these out there. The interesting thing this morning was Sima Verma was saying that these plans well, just the fact CMS that administrator. Administrator, mm-hmm. these plans just the fact that they're gonna allow them is one reason why premiums are going to go down next year. Now these aren't on the market yet, these longer duration ones, and um, a lot of experts. Our concern, as we've discussed, that these are actually going to pull people out of the market and might raise premiums. So we'll have to see how that all plays out. But, but there are pros and cons to these, and but they are going to be out there soon.
0: Are there any estimates, any thoughts on how many people will actually enroll in these things? I mean, is the thought that you may have a healthier consumer, a younger consumer, um, go ahead and jump into these? Rebecca?
2: So Republicans on the Senate floor yesterday were citing an Urban Institute study that said that there were 1.7 million uninsured people who would get the plans. Um, There are other estimates that something like Two million people would leave the exchanges and go into these plans. It's hard to know, really, because we, we just can't totally predict consumer behavior. But the people who would be attracted to these would be the people who are healthier, and that could have a problem. That could create a problem for the risk pool. Um, and we saw the arguments playing out yesterday on the floor. The Democrats just said, these are junk insurance. Nobody should get these. These are these don't cover medical expenses in a lot of cases. Um, Republicans countered by saying, look, some people, Lamar Alexander, the health committee chairman, kept saying, what about the plumber who doesn't? who makes too much money to get a subsidy on the healthcare care exchange. He, these health care exchange plans are too expensive for him. He needs something to just cover some of his expenses and it's better than nothing and it gives people an affordable alternative. So we're seeing that fight play out. Um, one thing that was interesting was that when they put out the final rule in August They did, HHS, uh, the Health and Human Services Agency, did say that there have to be prominent warnings saying these plans do not comply with all of the benefits that are required in the health care law that Julie
0: mentioned. So I'm sure that's one thing we'll all be watching as open enrollment heads into uh, in the fall. And then I thought it was interesting, Susan Collins, who's a Republican from Maine, actually voted with the Democrats on this measure to dump the short-term plans. Her answer was uh, that the answer to the affordability problem was not to wipe out consumer protections for people with pre-existing conditions. Did that surprise anyone here that Susan Collins went with the Dems? Anna?
3: No, I don't think it surprised me at all. Um, I think that the Democrats brought this um, this up on the floor because they wanted to make the argument about the short term plans about pre-existing conditions specifically, and to kind of get Republicans on the record. Voting one way or the other, and then they can say, "Look, they voted against protecting pre-existing conditions." Um, so certainly, I think Susan Susan Collins's unique position um, as in you know being the senator, Republican senator from Maine, who has been a an advocate for the ACA in some ways um, in in keeping some of those protections. So I think it it didn't surprise me um, particularly that she voted. For it, I, I did think I, I think Democrats thought more Republicans would be worried, um, and so you have like Dean Heller um, who you know, might have a tough um, Nevada, re-election. Right? Yes, yeah, yeah. and Republican and who who voted against it. Um, I think they were hoping to have that argument against them, and 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 so Republicans seem comfortable making the argument that they're still protecting pre-existing conditions while their the short-term plans are on the market.
0: We'll get to that election showdown in just a second. But next, I want to move to two health care bills that did pass Congress on a bipartisan basis. President Trump has signed into law two bills aimed at preventing gag clauses that stop pharmacists from disclosing cheaper drug price options to consumers. I'd like someone to explain what are the gag clauses, what they are, how common are they, how do they work? Anna
3: the gag clauses um first of all, are not particularly common. Most of the larger pharmacy benefit managers have said they they don 't do them, um, but they still aren 't done and what happens is when a consumer goes to the pharmacy, um, you, typically you pick up your drugs and you pay a copay so if you have you know if it 's a specialty drug, you might have a ninety dollar copay if it's you know and it gets lower as you go there's a chance that the actual cost of the drug is less than what you would pay for it. Um, or if you're paying out of pocket, That's a this is if you're using insurance. The gag clause is between the pharmacy benefit manager or the insurer and with the pharmacist to not be able to tell the consumer that they could pay less if they just paid out of pocket, if they just paid cash instead of using their insurance. Um, and so this takes that ability for any that were left doing it, um, takes that away. And so your pharmacist can inform you um, you know, when you go to pay, hey, this, you know, could be $12 cheaper or whatever the number is. You know, like I said, they aren't particularly common and and they they lower, I think there's an important important point that they lower the price that we would might pay, the consumer might pay. This isn't going to go lowering drug prices
0: overall. That's a, key, that's a key point.
3: Yeah. And I think Donald Trump tried to make that um, when he signed the bills. He tried to say, we're lowering drug prices. Look at us. And they're lowering what consumers pay. Still important, but they're not actually getting at the root of the problem.
2: And I think that's an important point because I think, you know, when they came, when the president came out in May and said, we're going to do something about drug prices, there was An expectation that maybe something might happen to lower the trajectory of drug spending. But nothing that's being implemented right now in Washington really is going to make a huge difference. Congress has done very little on drug prices this year. They did accelerate the timetable for closing what's called the donut hole, which is a coverage gap it's in for Medicare. Medicare right? yes. yeah. Under previous law, seniors were supposed to pay 25% of the cost in this coverage gap starting in 2020. They moved that up by a year, just one year. Um, so they took credit for that. They took credit for these gag clauses. But there's really not a lot going on. Um, The administration is trying to do more. Um, Secretary Azar did ask Congress to do. Secretary of Health and Human Services,
0: Secretary Alex Azar, right? He's been talking a lot about that.
2: He's talked about it. He's asked Congress for help. Congress has not really helped. There was a big fight recently in which um, the, uh, the Judiciary Committee chairman, Chuck Grassley from Iowa, got together with Dick Durbin from Illinois. They tried to Put in a spending bill something that would say that drug companies have to list their drug their drug prices in spending a- in ads, and uh, that didn't even get through. Which it wasn't even that big of a deal. It was just a million dollars to implement this. So um, so. You know, we see the FDA moving forward on trying to spur generic competition and other things. But really, we're still facing the same problem, the same crushing cost. The prescription drugs are supposed to go up 6.3% a year for the next decade, and nothing really is going to change that dramatically.
0: Right. So you raise a great point. All of these themes we see in the midterm elections, prescription drug costs. Uh, pre-existing conditions. Um, I expect even this op-ed that the president wrote yesterday about Medicare for All, which was widely panned as many factual inaccuracies, that they are all going to be a part of the midterm elections. Let's talk a little bit about that. It seems like Democrats have the upper hand on the pre-existing medical
1: issue, unless I'm off the charts here. Julie. Polls show that about 75 percent of Americans want to keep these pre-existing condition protections, and that cuts across both parties. People want to see they're worried they won't be able to get coverage Absolutely. if they get sick. So it's it resonates with people, and it's, it's thor- a thorny issue for Republicans because they say they want to protect this. But yet at the same time, there's a lawsuit by 20 states that seeks to overturn the pre-existing condition protections in the Affordable Care Act. And a, a district court judge in Texas is going to come out with a ruling on that fairly soon. It's likely to end up going to the Supreme Court, but it's certainly going to be talked about. the The Trump administration has not has has decided not to defend those provisions of the ACA, but some Democratic attorneys general are defending that law. So it's it's coming up. It's a resonates with the public, and it's a it's a tough issue. And I think some of you we were talking this morning about some of the advertising and that kind of thing we're going to be seeing. What, are we already seeing some ads on 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 this from both sides? Tons. And what are they saying? Tons. Yes,
3: yeah, tons is is correct. I, um, you know, and from what I've seen and read about them is they're sort of interesting because you have Republicans, you know, still saying, my record shows I support pre-existing conditions in these ads. And you have Trump writing in the op-ed that since his campaign, he's supported pre-existing conditions. And that begs the question about this Texas lawsuit, if they're supporting it, um, how they can make that claim. And the same with, you know, voting for repeal and replace or supporting it in some way. Um, So I think, it's just not such a black and white issue as maybe it started out, which, you know, it, it's, um, it's become the biggest campaign issue so far. And the further we wade into it, the more muddy the waters are getting, not necessarily because of the facts, but because of just how it's being talked about. And I think um, Democrats may have a little bit of a tougher time campaigning against a Republican on that than they thought they might have.
0: Well, it's interesting. There were tons of – I was in Indiana over the weekend visiting family and just tons of ads in that Joe Donnelly-Mike Braun mm-hmm. race. So I think your point is well taken, Anna. This is going to be a center focus for the campaigns. Now, Anna, I'm going to stay with you for a minute. You're a drug expert. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about that the Food, the Food and Drug Administration announced it's going to make it easier for pharmaceutical companies to bring more complex and more profitable generic drugs to market – what are they talking about? Help. <laughs> so, <me. laughs> yes.
3: Well, you have your um, your traditional drugs that um, you know, let's take Lipitor, a you know, a statin um, that is a, a, a chemical. It's just a it's a pretty simple pill, and it can be copied um, eventually once the patents go away, and they can make tons of generics of it. Um, This happens all the time. And with your complex drugs, these are going to be ones that are a drug but probably are coupled um, with a device in some way is a a typical example of a complex drug. Um, EpiPen is an example of that. It's a very old drug, epinephrine, in there, but the device has has patents on it.
0: Um, And critically, a life drug for anybody who's got, especially kids have an aller- allergy to right. nuts, for example.
3: Yeah, life-saving drug, and so um, the FDA has trouble approving the generics because the device isn't exactly the same as the you know the other the original product. And if it's a generic, you're supposed to just be able to swap one for the other. And what the FDA has kind of come down on is being more flexible and saying. Consumers might understand, you know, one little difference in, say, a cap of this EpiPen or some other thing um, versus, you know, it has to be exactly the same. And so they're trying to ease that. One way they, they, they looked at that this week was um, with patches. So, you know, these can be nicotine patches or birth control patches, hormone patches. Um, and they want to – They try. they were trying to make it easier for these companies to show – that the, the patch actually works sticks to you, um, that it doesn't irritate your skin. And, you know, that's been a, a an impediment for some of the generic drug makers because they didn't feel they could actually show that in a good way. So they're trying to ease some regulation to get more of these to market.
0: Well, the brand name makers fight this because they want to have brand exclusivity, mm-hmm. keep a higher price, Are they going to go back at the FDA on this? Any sign about that?
3: So we saw that with Mylan, which is the which sells the EpiPens, and for years they fought um, the Teva generic of an EpiPen because they said the consumer wouldn't understand that it had different cap system on the EpiPen, and the FDA under Scott Gottlieb decided that they weren't going to let that stand in the way, and they approved Teva's so generic EpiPen. So they let it come to market. So companies might be rethinking whether it's worth it to fight, um, you know, and at what level. I mean, Mylan submitted a citizen petition, um, sure. you know, so there might be other ones of those. But I think FDA signaled that, you know, that's not something they're going to let stand in the way of approving them.
0: I'm sure we'll be talking more about that in a few weeks to come and months to come. So let's go ahead now and move to our extra credit segment. That's where we suggest a story that we saw over the past week and we think others should read it too. Don't worry, if you miss it, we'll post all of these links to the stories on the podcast page at khn.org. And who would like to go first this week? If you gals are all looking for your stories, I could jump in there. Oh, Julie's got her hand up. I got got my story. This this was a fun
1: story by Sandra Budman, um, actually for Kaiser Health News. But it was called Headlines Spurred by Convenience, Millennials Often Spurn the Family Doctor Model. Uh, Turns out a lot of folks don't want to wait at the doctor's office. They want care now, the younger And so many, many of them don't have primary care. So we're seeing a big uptick in the use of of these sort of dock-in-the-box kind of places and uh, other, other things the like urgent, that. Care urgent care centers, centers yeah. things that are in grocery stores or, or, or uh, drug stores, that type of thing. It's just an interesting, fun kind of read.
0: And it's also interesting to note, and I think it was noted in that story, these folks are calling the doctor's office. They're being told they have to wait three or four days. They probably know if they look at their health insurance card, you go to the emergency room, you're going to have a high out-of-pocket. So these urgent care centers are sort of the sweet
1: spot. Right. It's less expensive than an emergency room. It might, might be a little bit more expensive than going to the doctor, but it's, it's faster. It's more convenient. Absolutely. Rebecca?
2: So I chose a story from The New York Times about migrant children. It's really – the reporters went to court and just per- – provided a glimpse into what's going on with the children who have been detained and are now being processed and are still separated from their parents. Um, and it tells the story of a little two-year-old girl who has been separated for all this time um, and the difficulties that the kids are having and understanding all of these things. Um, so I just thought that it was interesting to kind of see the parade of children coming before the judges and also just remind people that a lot of doctors, a lot of pediatricians and and psychologists say that the separation of kids from family members is going to have long-lasting mental and physical effects for decades, really. And so it's just a reminder that this remains an issue. Absolutely. Anna? mine
3: is um, Gina Colada's story in the New York Times. These cholesterol reducers may save lives. So why aren't heart patients getting them? This is about these new cholesterol medications. They're for really tough to treat cholesterol, um, very high cholesterol. But insurance companies are worried of them. They're not exactly sure they're necessary in all cases. And they haven't been covering them. And so she, she dives into why and talks to some patients who aren't able to get them. What was fascinating um, is the follow-up. This company that makes one of them called Regeneron had, you know, called the reporter back and said, you know, we want to help those two patients. I mean, you know, we know insurers are being tough about this, so we want to help them out. And they also let her know that one of them, the founder of the company that created this drug, also can't get insurance coverage for the drug that he wants to take, this very same drug. Um, I suggest reading both uh, her follow-up as well, which is just looking at, you know, the the impact of her reporting.
0: Terrific. Thank you. Uh, my story is from Colby Ekowitz of The Washington Post. And she looks at what happened during the 10 years after Congress passed a measure that was aimed at ensuring health care parity. I think at least two of the other ladies, perhaps all three of us, you know, all four of us rather covered this 10 years ago when it was on the floor. The law requires and ensures offer mental health and addiction treatment coverage that's on par with physical health benefits. And, of course, the ACA bolstered that a few years ago when it added behavioral health as one of those essential health benefit plans offered in the individual and small group marketplaces. But sadly, in the decades since the law passed, the story talks about so many barriers that still remain for people who have care for people with mental health conditions or substance abuse disorders. An analysis cited in this story found that 32 states, and I wanna say that again, 32, we only have 50, 32 states did not ensure equal coverage for behavioral health. The worst offenders, according to the report, were Wyoming, Arizona, Idaho, and I'm sadly sad to say my home state of Indiana, they all got Fs. The only state to get an A was Illinois, so clearly more work needs to be done there. So that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review on iTunes. That will help other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at whatthehealth at kff.org or you can tweet us. I'm at Mary Agnes Carey. I'm at Julie underscore Appleby.
2: At Rebecca Adams, DC.
0: At Anna Edney. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.